I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, But in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read... Uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. I was trying to think, what am I going to say about what's new with me in this episode? Uh, And I really have nothing. I go to work. Uh, I spent my day doing online classes. Uh, Tomorrow, I have to spend a good portion of my day in this one big long meeting downtown. And, uh, you know, the most exciting part about that is we're going to take the train, the light rail, into the city to go do that as a group. And then I'll come home and get the kids, make them dinner, get them their homework, and get them to bed. And then wake up and get their lunch ready and get them up and get them off to school and all that stuff. <clears throat> so that just goes on and on. What's the point? Uh, life isn't exciting. It's not like you thought it would be back when you were 20 years old. You thought uh, things would have more purpose. And then I realized I'm living in the middle of history. Uh, we have the coronavirus, which is scaring the hell out of everyone right now. And that's... Uh, That's history in the making, and I'm living in it. All I'm doing is mundane stuff. Uh, We have In America, we have a president who is completely insane. And every time you read the news, it's about something he said or did that is completely insane. And uh, yet, I still sit around my house eating uh, Chips Ahoy cookies, debating if I should take a nap or not. Uh, And I imagine when you watch movies set in the early 1940s, you think, oh, what an exciting time. The culture, the clothing, the music, the, the listening to the radio instead of watching TV, and all these things. Uh, boy, what it must have been like to live back then. It probably was the same. I'm sure everyone was just bored all the time and just had to do chores and debate if they should take a nap or not. And so I try to make myself feel better about the week I'm having, which is completely uneventful and not something you'd ever tell your 20-year-old self you can go back in time that this is what life will be like. Uh, I try to tell myself I'm living in history, even though I'm spending it on the couch watching Netflix. So, eh, that's my message for my week. Uh, yeah, what I'm doing is not worth relating to you, but I'm living in history. These are the times someone else is going to talk about later, and I'm in it. So think about that. As we read the next chapter, uh, chapter 8, The Foreordained Attachment of Zena Pepperley and Peter Pupkin. My poor cat, who's 21 years old, is so lonely since the other cat passed away that he's just been walking around the house yowling 
Um, I've been home, but haven't been up there taking care of them because I've been down in the basement recording podcasts with Ben and now reporting uh, this. So I've left the door open so he can come down. You're probably going to hear him stand up there and scream at me at some point. We're just going to pretend like it's not happening. Chapter 8. The Foreordained Attachment of Zena Pepperley and Peter Pupkin. Zena Pepperley used to sit reading novels on the piazza of the judge's house, half hidden by the Virginia creepers. At times, the book would fall upon her lap, and there was such a look of unstilled yearning in her violet eyes that it did not entirely disappear, even when she picked up the apple uh, that lay beside her and took another bite of it. With hands clasped, she would sit there, dreaming all the beautiful daydreams of girlhood. When you saw that faraway look in her eyes, it meant that she was dreaming that a plumbed and armored knight was rescuing her from the embattled keep of a castle beside the Danube. At other times, she was being borne away by an Algerian corsair over the blue waters of the Mediterranean and was reaching out her arms toward France to say farewell to it. Sometimes when you noticed a sweet look of resignation that seemed to rest upon her features, it meant that Lord Ronald de Chavot was kneeling at her feet, and that she was telling him to rise, that her humbler birth must ever be a bar to their happiness. And Lord Ronald uh, was getting into an awful state about it, as English peers do at the least suggestion of anything of the sort, or... If it wasn't that, then her lover had just returned to her side, tall and soldierly and sunburned, after fighting for ten years in the Sudan for her sake, and had come back to ask her for her answer and to tell her that for ten years her face had been with him even in the watches of the night. He was asking her for a sign, any kind of sign. Ten years in the Sudan entitles them to a sign, and Zeno was plucking a white rose, uh, just one from her hair, when she would hear her father's step on the piazza and make a grab for the pioneers of Tecumseh Township and start reading it like mad. She was always, as I say, being rescued and being borne away and being parted and reaching out her arms to France and to Spain and saying goodbye forever to uh, Valadold or the old gray towers of, oh my lord, Hohenbrand twin. And I don't mean that she was in at least exceptional or romantic because all the girls in Mariposa were just like that. An Algerian corsair could have come into the town and had a dozen of them for the asking. And as for a wounded English officer, well, perhaps it's better not to talk about it outside or the little town would become a regular military hospital. Because, mind you, the Mariposa girls are all right. You only need to see them to realize that. You see, you can get in Mariposa a print dress or a pale blue or a pale pink for a dollar twenty that looks infinitely better than anything you ever see in the city, especially if you can wear it uh, with a broad straw hat and a background of maple trees and the green grass of a tennis court. And if you remember, too, that these are cultivated girls who have all been to the Mariposa High School. And can do decimal fractions. Uh, you will understand that an Algerian corsair would sharpen his scimitar at uh, the very sight of him. Don't think either that they are all dying to get married because they are not. I don't say they 
wouldn't take an errant knight or a buccaneer or a Hungarian refugee, but for the ordinary marriages of ordinary people, they feel nothing but a pitying disdain. So it is that each one of them, in due time, marries an enchanted prince and goes to live in one of the little enchanted houses in the lower powder town. I don't know whether you know it, but you could rent an enchanted house in Mariposa for $8 a month, and some of the most completely enchanted are the cheapest. As for the enchanted princes, uh, they find them in the strangest places where you never expected to see them working under a spell, you understand, in drugstores and printing offices and even selling things in shops. Uh, uh, but to be able to find them, you have to first read ever so many novels about Sir Galahad and the errant quest and that sort of thing. Naturally, when Zena Pepperley uh, sat on the piazza and dreamed of bandits, and a wounded officers, and the Lord Ronalds riding on foam-flecked charges, but that she'd ever dreamed of a junior bank teller in a daffodil blazer riding past on a bicycle? Eh, it's pretty hard to imagine. So when Mr. Pumpkin came tearing past up the slope of 1 Oneida Street at a speed that proved he wasn't riding there merely to pass the house, I don't suppose that Zena Pepperley was aware of his existence. That might be a slight uh, exaggeration. She knew, perhaps... And that he was the new junior teller in the exchange bank, and that he came from the maritime provinces, and that nobody knew who his people were, and that he had never been in a canoe in all his life till he came to Mariposa, and that he sat four pews back in Dean Drone's church, and that his salary was $800 beyond that. She didn't know a thing about him. She presumed, however, that the reason why he went past so fast was because he didn't dare go slow. This, of course, was perfectly correct ever since the day when Miss Pumpkin met Zena in the main street. He used to come past the house on his bicycle just after the bank hours. He would have gone past 20 times a day, but he was afraid to. As he came up uh, Oneida Street, he used to pedal faster and faster. He never meant to, but he couldn't help it. Until he went past the piazza where Zena was sitting at an awful speed with his little yellow blazer flying in the wind, and in a second he had disappeared uh, in a buzz in a cloud of dust. And the momentum of it carried him clear out of the country for miles and miles before he ever dared to pause or look back. Then Mr. Pumpkin would ride in a huge circuit about the country, trying to think. He was looking at the crops, and sooner or later his bicycle would be turned toward the town again and head for Oneida Street. And he would get going quicker and quicker. Ah, and quicker! till the pedals whirled around with a buzz as he came past the judge's house again like a bullet ah, out of the gun. He rode 15 miles to pass the house twice, and even then it took all the nerve that he had. The people on a night of street thought that Mr. Pumpkin was crazy, but Zena Pepperley knew that he was not. Already, you see, there was a sort of dim parallel between the passing of the bicycle and the last ride of Tancred the Inconsolable along the banks of the Danube. I have already mentioned, I think, how Mr. Pupkin and Zena Pepperley first came to know one another. Like everything else about them, it was a sheer matter of coincidence. Quite inexplicable, unless you understand that these uh, things are foreordained. That, of course, is the way with foreordained affairs, and that's why where they differ from ordinary love. I won't try to describe how Mr. Pumpkin felt when he first spoke with Zena and sat beside her as they copied out the quote, endless chain letter, asking for ten cents. They wrote out, as I said, no less than eight of the letters between them, and they found out that their handwritings were so alike that you could hardly tell them apart, except that Mr. Pumpkin's letters were round and Zena's letters were pointed. And Pumpkin wrote straight up and down, Zena wrote on a slant. 
Beyond that, the writing was so alike that it was the strangest coincidence in the world. Of course, when they made figures, it was different, and Pumpkin explained to Xena that in the bank you have to be able to make a seven so that it doesn't look like a nine. So as they say, they wrote letters all afternoon. When it was over, they walked up a night of street together, ever so slowly. When they got near the house, Xena asked Pumpkin to come into tea. And it was such an easy offhand way that you couldn't have told that she was half an hour late and was taking awful chances on the judge. Pupkin hadn't had the time to say yes before the judge appeared at the door. Ugh, just as they were stepping up onto the piazza. And he had a, had a table napkin in his hand and the dynamite sparks were flying from his spectacles as he called out, Ah, great heavens, Zena! Why in everlasting blazes can't you get into tea at a Christian hour? Zena gave one look of appeal to Pupkin, and Pupkin looked one glance of comprehension, and turned and fled down an Ida Street. And if the scene wasn't quite as dramatic as the renunciation of Tancred the Troubadour, it was at least had something of the same elements in it. Pumpkin walked home to his supper at the Mariposa house on, on air, and that evening there was a gentle distance in his manner towards Sadie, a dining room girl that I suppose no bank clerk in Mariposa ever showed before. It was like Sir Galahad talking with the tire woman of Queen Guinevere and receiving Huckleberry Pie at their hands. After that, Mr. Pumpkin and Zena Pepperley constantly met together. They played tennis as partners on the grass court behind Dr. Gallagher's house, a Mariposa tennis club rented, you remember, for 50 cents a month. And Pumpkin uh, used to perform perfect prodigies of valor, leaping into the air. Uh, to serve with his little body looked like a, like a letter S. Sometimes, uh, too, they went out on Lake Wissanati in the evening in Pumpkin's canoe, with Zena sitting in the bow and Pumpkin paddling in the stern, and they went out ever so far. And it was after dark, and the stars were shining before they came home. Zena would look at the stars and say how infinitely far away they seemed. And Pumpkin would realize that a girl with a mind like that couldn't have any use for a fool such as him. Zena used to ask him to point out the Pleiades and Jupiter and Ursa Minor, and Pumpkin showed her exactly where they were. That impressed them both tremendously, because Pumpkin didn't know that Zena remembered the names out of the astronomy book at her boarding school, and Zena didn't know that Pumpkin simply took a chance on where the stars were. And there were so many times they talked so intimately that Pumpkin came mighty near to telling her about his home in the maritime provinces, and about his father and his mother, and then kicked himself that he and the manliness to speak straight out about it and take the consequences. Please don't imagine from any of this that the course of Mr. Pumpkin's love ran smooth. On the contrary, Pumpkin himself felt that it was absolutely hopeless from the start. There were, it might be admitted, certain things that seemed to indicate progress. In the course of the months of June and July and August, he had taken Zena out his canoe 31 times, allowing an average of two miles for each evening. Pupkin had paddled Zena 62 miles, or more than 100,000 yards. It surely was something. He had played tennis with her on 16 afternoons. Uh, three times he had left his tennis racket up at the judge's house in Zena's charge, and once he had, with her full consent, left his bicycle there all night. This must count for something. No girl could trifle with a man to the extent of having his bicycle leaning against the veranda post all night and mean nothing by it. More than that, he had been to tea at the judge's house 14 times. Uh, and seven times he had been asked by Lillian Drone to the rectory when Zena was coming. 
and five times by Nora Gallagher to tea at the doctor's house because Zeno is there. Altogether, he had eaten so many meals where Zeno was that his meal ticket at the Mariposa lasted nearly double its proper time. And the face of Sadie, the dining room girl, had grown to wear a look of melancholy resignation, sadder than romance. Still more than that, Pumpkin had brought for Zena, reckoning it altogether two buckets of ice, uh, ice cream, and perhaps half a bushel of chocolate. Not that Pumpkin grudged the expense of it. On the contrary, over and above the ice cream and the chocolate, he had brought her a white waistcoat and a walking stick with a gold top. A lot of new neckties and a uh, pair of patent leather boots, that is. They, they were all brought on account of her, which is the same thing. Add to all this that Pumpkin and Zena had been to the Church of England Church nearly every Sunday evening for two months. Uh, one evening, they had even gone to the Presbyterian Church, uh, quote, for fun, unquote. Which, if you know Mariposa, yeah, you'll realize to be a wild sort of escapade that ought to speak volumes. Yet in spite of this, uh, Pumpkin felt that the thing was hopeless, which only illustrates the dreadful ups and downs and wild altercations of hope and despair that characterize an exceptional affair of this sort. Uh, yes, it was hopeless. Every time that Pupkin watched Zena praying in church, he knew uh, that she was too good for him. Every time that he came to call for her and found her reading Browning and Omar Khayyam, Khayyam, K-H-A-Y-Y-A-M, he knew that she was too clever for him. And every time that he saw her at all, he realized that she was too beautiful for him. You see, Pupkin uh, knew that he wasn't a hero. When Zena would clasp her hands and talk rapturously about crusaders and soldiers and firemen and heroes generally, Pupkin knew just where he came in. Not in it. Eh, that was all. If a war would have broken out in Mariposa or the judge's house had been invaded by Germans, he might have had a chance, but... It was uh, hopeless. Then, uh, there was Zena's father. Heaven knows Pupkin tried hard to please the judge. He agreed with every theory that Judge Pepperly advanced, and that took a pretty pliable intellect in itself. They denounced female suffrage one day, and they favored it the next. Uh, one day, the judge would claim that the labor movement was eating out the heart of the country. And the next day, he would hold that the hope of the world lay in the organization of the toiling masses. Pupkin has shifted his opinions like the glass in a kaleidoscope. Indeed, the only things on which he was allowed to maintain a steadfast conviction were the purity of the Conservative Party of Canada and the awful wickedness of the recall of judges. But with all that, the judge was hardly civil to Pumpkin. He hadn't asked him to the house till Zena brought him there. Though, as a rule, all the bank clerks in Mariposa treated Judge Pepperley's premises as their own, he used to sit and sneer at Pumpkin after he had gone till Zena would throw down the pioneers of Tecumseh Township in a temper and flounce off the piazza to her room. After which the judge's manner would change instantly, ah, and he would re relight his corncob pipe and sit and positively beam with contentment in all of which there was something so mysterious as to prove that Mr. Pumpkin's chances were hopeless. Nor was it all of it. Uh, Pumpkin's salary was $800 a year, and the exchange bank limit for marriage was 1000 I suppose you're aware of the grinding, capitalistic tyranny of the banks in Mariposa, whereby marriage is put beyond the reach of ever so many mature and experienced men of uh, 19, 20, and 21 who are compelled to go on eating on a meal ticket at the Mariposa house and 
living over the bank to suit the whim of a group of capitalists. Whenever Pumpkin thought of this, $200, he understood all that meant by social unrest. In fact, he interpreted all forms of social discontent in terms of it. Russian anarchism, German socialism, and the labor movement. Henry George, Lloyd George, he understood the whole lot of them by thinking it is $200. When I tell you that this period, Mr. Pumpkin read memoirs of the great revolutionists and even thought of blowing up Henry Mullins with dynamite, eh, you can appreciate his state of mind, but not even by all these hindrances and obstacles to his love for Zena Pepperley would Peter Pumpkin have driven to commit suicide. Oh, yes, he committed it three times, as I'm going to tell you. Had it not been for another thing that he knew stood once and for all in a cold reality between him and Zena. He felt, uh, in a sort of way, as, as soon as he knew her, each time that he tried to talk uh, to her about his home and his father and his mother, and found something held him back, he realized more and more uh, the kind of thing that stood between them. Most of all did he realize, uh, with a sudden sickness of heart, when he got word that his father and mother wanted to come to Mariposa to see him, and he had all he could do to head them off from it. Why? Eh, why stop them? The reason was simple enough that Pumpkin was ashamed of them, bitterly ashamed. The picture of his mother and father turning up in Mariposa had been seen by his friends there and going up to the Pepperley house made him feel uh, faint with shame. No, I don't say it wasn't wrong. It only shows the difference of the fortune, the difference of being rich and being poor. It means in this world, perhaps you've been so lucky that you cannot appreciate uh, what it means to feel shame at the situation of your own father and mother. You think it doesn't matter. That honesty and kindliness of heart are all that counts. The only thing that shows you have never known some of the bitterest feelings of people less fortunate than yourself. So it was with Mr. Pupkin. When he thought of his father and mother turning up in Mariposa, his face reddened with unworthy shame. He could just picture the scene. Ah, he could not get them out of their limousine touring car with the chauffeur holding open the door for them and his, his father asking for a suite of rooms. Uh, just think of it, a suite of rooms at the Mariposa house. And the very thought of it turned him ill. What? Ah, you've mistaken my meaning. Ashamed of them for being that they're poor? Oh, good heavens, no, because they were rich. And not rich in the sense of which they were used the term in Mariposa where a rich person merely means a man who has money enough to build a house with a piazza and to have everything he wants, but rich in the other sense. Oh, motor cars, Ritz hotels, eh, steam yachts, the summer islands, and all that sort of thing. Why, Pumpkin's father, what the use of trying to conceal it any longer, was a senior partner in the law firm of Pumpkin, Pumpkin, and Pumpkin. And if you know the maritime provinces at all, you've heard the Pumpkins, the name in the household, were uh, from... Cherubukto to Cherubukto, whatever that means. And for the matter of that, the law firm and the fact that the Pumpkin Senior had been an attorney general and was the least part of it. Attorney general, why, there's no money in that. It's no better than the Senate. No, no, Pumpkin Senior, like so many lawyers, was practically a promoter. And he blew companies like Bubbles. And when he wasn't in the maritime provinces, he was in Boston and New York raising money and floating loans. And when they had no money left in New York, he floated it in London. And when he had it, he floated on top of the big rafts of lumber in the Miramachi and codfish and the Grand Banks and lesser fish in the Fundy Bay. 
You've heard perhaps of the Title Transportation Company and Fundy Fisheries Corporation and the Pasperbeak Pulp and Paper Unlimited. Ah, well, all of those were Pupkin Sr. under other names. So just imagine him in Mariposa. Ah, wouldn't it be utterly foolish there? Just imagine him meeting Jim Elliott and treating him like a, a druggist merely because he ran a drugstore. Or speaking to Jefferson Thorpe as if he were a barber so because he shaved for money. Why, a man like that could ruin young Pumpkin and Mariposa in half a day. And Pumpkin knew it. That wouldn't matter so much, but think of the pepper lace and Xena. Uh, everything would be over within them at once. Pumpkin knew just what the judge thought of riches and luxuries. How often had he heard the judge pass sentences of life imprisonment on Pierpoint Morgan and Mr. Rockefeller? How often had Pumpkin heard him say that any man who received more than $3,000 a year, that was a judicial salary in the Minnesota district, was a mere robber, unfit to shake the hand of a, an honest man. Bitter? I should say he was. He is not so bitter, perhaps, as Mr. Muddleson, the principal of the Mariposa High School, who said that any man who received more than $1,500 was a public enemy. He was certainly not so bitter as Trelawney, the postmaster, who said that any man who got from society more than $1,300, apart from a legitimate increase in recognition of a successful election, was a danger uh, to society. Still, he was bitter. They're all in Mariposa. Pumpkin could just imagine how they would despise his father. Oh, and Zena. That was the worst of all. How often had Pumpkin heard her say that she simply hated diamonds? Wouldn't wear them, despise them. I wouldn't give a thank you for the whole tiara of them. Eh? As for motor cars and steam yachts, well, it was pretty plain that sort of thing had no chance with Zena Pepperley. Why, she had told Pumpkin one night in the canoe that she would only marry a man who was poor and had his way to make and would hew down difficulties uh, for her sake. And when Pumpkin couldn't answer the argument, uh, she was quite cross and silent all the way home. What was Peter Pumpkin doing? Uh, then $800 in the Bank of Mariposa? If you ask that, it means that you know nothing of the life of the maritime provinces and the sturdy temper of the people. I suppose there are no people in the world who hate luxury and extravagance and that sort of thing quite as much as the maritime province people and of them, no one hated luxury more than Pupkin Sr. Don't mistake the man. He wore a long sealskin coat in winter, yes. But mark you, not as a matter of luxury, oh, but merely as a question of his lungs. Oh, he smoked, I admit it, a 35-cent cigar. Not because he preferred it, uh, but merely uh, through a delicacy of the thorax that made it imperative. He drank champagne at lunch. I can see the point not in the least enjoyment of it, but simply on account of a peculiar affection of the tongue and lips that positively dictated it. His own longing, and his wife shared it, was for the simple, simple life, an island somewhere, with birds and trees. They had bought three or four islands, one in the St. Lawrence and two in the Gulf, and one off the coast of Maine, looking for this sort of thing. Pumpkin Sr. often said that he wanted to have some place that would remind him of a little old farm up in Arsuk, where he was brought up and often bought little old farms just to try them. But as they always turned out to be so near the city that he cut them into real estate lots without even having time to look at them. But, and this is where the emphasis lay, 
In the matter of luxury for his only son, Peter Pupkin Sr. was a maritime province man right to the core. With all the hardihood of the United Empire loyalists ingrained in him, no luxury for that boy, no sir. From his childhood, Pupkin Sr. had undertaken, at the least sign of luxury, to tan it out of him after the fashion still in vogue in the provinces. Then he sent him to an old-fashioned school uh, to get it thumped out of him. And after that, he had put him uh, for a year on a Nova Scotia schooner to get it knocked out of him. If after all that, young Pupkin, even when he came to Mariposa, were camel pins and daffodil blazers and broke out into a ribbed silk saffron ties on payday, it only shows that the old Adam uh, still needs further tanning, even in the maritime provinces. Young Pumpkin, of course, uh, was to have gone into law. That was his father's cherished dream and would have made a firm pumpkin, 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 and pumpkin. And it ought to have been. Uh, Young Peter was kept out of the law by the fool system of examinations devised since his father's time. Hence, there was nothing for it but for him to sling into a bank. Uh, Sling him was, I think, the expression. So his father decided that if Pumpkin was to be slung, he should be slung good and far, clean to Canada. You know the way they use that word in maritime provinces. And to sling Pumpkin, he called in the services of an old friend, a man after his own heart. Just as violent as himself, Uh, who used to be at the law school in the city where Pumpkin Sr. 30 years ago. So his friend, who happened to live in Mariposa and who was a violent man, said at once, Edward, uh, by Jehoshaphat, send the boy up here. So that is how Pumpkin came to Mariposa. And if, when he got there, his father's friend gave no sign and treated the boy with roughness and incivility, yeah, that may have been, for all I know, a continuation of the tanning process in the maritime people. Did I mention the Pepperleigh family, uh, generations ago, had taken up land near the Arsouk? And that it was from there the judge's father came to Tecumseh Township? Eh, perhaps not, but it doesn't matter. But surely, after such reminiscences as these, the awful things that were impending over Mr. Pumpkin must be kept for another chapter. Well, I had nothing to say in the intro to this show, so I winged it, hoping that I could somehow tie what I read into into that and wrap it all up with the what the moral is for this chapter. And I got nothing. This has nothing to do with history uh, and living in it and the you know, mundane nature of it. But uh, we did get to learn about a, a hilariously rich kid. Uh, getting tanned. So that's something. Uh, and as before, love is stupid. Uh, the boy is too shy to make a move on her or be honest about his family's wealth. And, and the girl just wants a knight to sweep her off her feet. And so they can never seem to come together and uh, just get married. Uh, I don't know why this kid doesn't show off his wealth. He should. Uh, he'll probably get a girlfriend a lot faster. But uh, he's a man of morals. He's been tanned into him. And so that's all we learned for this chapter. Basically nothing exciting. So, thanks for listening, and tune in next week. <laughs>